This call is being recorded. Hello, this is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. One more of our LSAT Life series of podcasts with my guest, Keith Seiska from Texas and Jake Feldman in New York. And today we're going to talk about a topic that everybody experiences, whether they tell you the truth or not. As long as the LSAT is part of your life, as long as the LSAT is your life, you will definitely have a lot of anxiety in your life. So today our official topic is life, LSAT anxiety, and LSAT anxiety. Welcome, Keith. Welcome, Jake. Are you anxious today? (laughs) A little bit. I, I'm all right, but uh, I don't have anything high stakes coming up in my future, so so so, well, so I don't, don't have anything have to be anxious. About. High stakes? Can't you just you know, you know, feel the anxiety coming from them? I mean, let me ask you this question: As experienced LSAT tutors, do you see part of your job as absorbing anxiety, recreating anxiety, and turning this negative force of anxiety into a positive force for test prep? Uh, yes, I mean, I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure that's the way I frame it, but but absolutely, when it when it comes to uh, uncovering and helping my students, my clients handle their anxiety, it's not just a part of it. It 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 comes to the fore more often than it doesn't, uh, and it became it becomes critical uh, in the path to to achieving what people want to achieve. Absolutely, I might find that articulation a little closer to my my philosophy because I am all about creating opportunities for discomfort early in the test prep process. And even earlier than that, as part of our LSAT lifestyle uh, series, I would say that there are activities you can do pre LSAT that start to develop the kind of poise and uh, time decision-making skills that are ultimately are going to be the sources of anxiety on the LSAT. Hmm. Well, you know, I went for uh, actually a calming walk before this podcast because just the thought of it was raising my blood pressure, to be honest, uh, you know, having lived so much of this with students. But it seems to me that anxiety has got to be part of LSAT preparation and a very minimal level. Part of LSAT preparation, therefore, should be that you're not cramming, okay? It's more of a, a transition into a, a, a sort of a training kind of lifestyle, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's not something that you can do in a month or two. It's not something that you can force to go faster. Um, and, and it's something you have to plan for long term. But but there, there are a lot of levels to that. One is that there's the, anxi- the anxiety of trying to accomplish something quickly. Second, there's the anxiety of the realization that you can't make it go quickly and what that means for you. And so managing that portion of the anxiety, what do I do? I need to take the test by X. What are people going to think? How am I going to get into the school if I can't make this go faster? What happens then? There's all that portion of the anxiety as well. There are a lot of sources for this anxiety, and, and we have to make sure that we parse them so that we can address them individually. Yeah, many of those sources are artificial, which, it, which oh, 100%. creates additional complexities for the, the role as a tutor, trying to convince people to shed certain expectations to alleviate anxieties that are unnecessary and 
and harmful to the the test prep process? So, you know, over the years, from time to time, I've either been asked or thought about the question, you know, what's the definition of a good LSAT tutor? And my definition, I think, or at least part of it, is that a good LSAT tutor is somebody who can uh, transition somebody to believe in their own abilities on the test. Does that make sense to you? I'm not saying it's the only thing, but it's sort of, you know, to use some LSAT ease here for a minute, maybe a necessary but not a sufficient condition. Yeah, for sure. It's 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 making efficient use of what is already present in a student and unpacking what is working and what isn't. You can't build you can't build somebody in your own image. You can't build somebody from the ground up and hope that they sort of uh, you know, uh, uh, autonomously take on on your personality and your ways of thinking. Instead, you have to work within the framework that you're given. And so, you know, a student that comes to you, you have to figure out who they are and and how to help them become the best version of them that they can be on the test. That's a, a very, very interesting way to describe that. And I think that this sort of discussion is you know, it's really, really lacking uh, because anxiety means different things to different peoples, to different people. Some people need, a, I think you need a certain amount of it to kind of get going because the whole prep process is such a major commitment, but you can't have so much of it that it, it cripples you. What is it you think that, so anxiety is worry. It's obviously a certain fear of not achieving something. What do you think people primarily feel anxious about? Well, I mean, we can think about this from a an anthropological standpoint and say anxiety is the the safety mechanism that prevents us from sticking our head in the bear cave, right? And so it's perfectly natural for people to feel anxiety. Anxiety is a normal feeling. It's a healthy feeling. If we don't have anxiety about new situations, we're going to put ourselves at all sorts of risk. The question is, can you manage your anxiety such that it doesn't get in the way of your accomplishing the tasks you want to accomplish? Um, and, and so if you translate that to an, an academic or intellectual paradigm, what we're really saying is, of course, something new, something unfamiliar will breed anxiety. The question is what you do about it at that point. Uh, and I think that's the first one. It's the uncertainty about what it is that you're looking at and what you're supposed to do about it. Somebody who picks up the LSAT for the first time, it's all new. And if they don't perform well on their diagnostic, that breeds further anxiety. And they have to understand that, you know, we, 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 I mean, I know we're headed in this direction, but, you know, we have to talk about mindset, right? Because if we are a person for whom uh, fixed mindset is the, the dominating factor, then all we're doing is saying the things that I'm looking at that are unfamiliar, that breed anxiety, they are an indication of my lack of intelligence and they run away from it. But if instead we can put ourselves in a position where we have a growth mindset, where we say opportunity opportunities to fail are opportunities to learn. And as long as I manage the degree to which I'm failing to make sure that it doesn't take over my psyche, 
then these failures are opportunities for me. They are the ways that I will grow and the ways that I will improve. And that's that anxiety management. It's, it's sort of an appropriate level of failure so that the anxiety doesn't take you over. Yeah, ultimately, I think the fear is failure. And so I tried to manage that by giving my students as many ways to fail as possible before the official test so they can experience it, react to it, and manage their reactions to it. Right. So let's be realistic here for a minute. I think that to some extent, when you're dealing with interacting with, you know, pre-law types who are obsessed with this and worried about it, I've often thought that, you know, a dose of reality is important. So the, the first thing that I would like to suggest is that, can we agree the LSAT is hard? Yes. Yeah, 100%. All right. <laughs> Absolutely. And the fact that it's hard, can we agree that that means that, therefore, the definition of hard is that it's going to be very difficult to identify the answers to the questions, correct? Sure. Yeah. That's one. I mean, that's one way that it's hard. There are a lot of reasons that it's hard, but that's that's okay. a, a well, fundamental one. This is what they're worried about. Okay. And yeah, some sure. of the reasons have to do with the extreme time pressure. Agreed. Yep. Yes. Always. Some of the reasons have to do with the fact that some of this stuff is just simply hard, right? Right. Well, maybe you know the first point would be uh, this. Um, you know what? Uh, the fact that you think it's hard is good because if you didn't think it was hard, uh, it would probably be an indication of more serious problems. Yeah, that yeah. you don't know what's going on. Either that, or you've aced it like in, in a in a miraculous way. Well, there are uh, there's always a few of those out there, but you know, let let them go. Okay, you know, we're not talking about them. They're not interested in LSAT tutoring. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, the great risk of oversimplification, right? I think I would start categorizing people in terms of the people who emotionally need a really, really, really high degree of certainty before putting an answer. In other words, you know, they are so deliberate that time cripples them versus at the other extreme, the people who are just so reckless, you know, they'll put anything and would do better if they slowed down. I mean, is, do you think that makes sense, at least in terms of a starting thing? Some people uh, don't really need more time, but they're too anxious because of the time constraints and are paralyzed. And the other people who just are so reckless that they're always underperforming because of that. Does that I'd go I'd go even further and say that those two traits can characterize the same test taker at different times. We built yeah. a whole like study method around that exact distinction that your study your practice, your study sessions must involve timed testing and untimed testing to probe your limits at both ends. And the more that our students commit to that, the more we feel like they, you know, improve their performance. And it's precisely because of what you're saying that in some instances and for some people, they need to be more deliberate. And in some instances or for some other people, they need far less certainty, less deliberation. And I think a lot of people need to understand that they're going to be getting stuff wrong. Agreed? Yeah, for sure. But yeah, and, for you know, sure. they're going to be getting stuff wrong. So 
The question is, how do you succeed when you get it wrong? You succeed by learning from the not only what the right answer is, but how the right answer is right, how you arrived at the wrong answer the first time, how to correctly arrive at the right answer the second time, and how you could have known the first time around that the right answer was right. You yeah, have to do all of those things. What's the right ultimate strategy to employ is the question. And, and what some t test takers have to or should conclude after that whole process is that at this point, the right answer for me is don't do that question on a time test. I'm better off pushing that off and looking for greener pastures. Yeah, no, know. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think on a really, really simple level, I think some important advice for a lot of these people, I'm quite serious about this, is that if they're going to get it wrong, at least get it, long, get it wrong really fast, right? You know, and not spend a lot of time on it. Because, you know, you see these people who, you know, it's as though they're, you know, they're paralyzed by certain sorts of questions. And they see, well, here it comes. Maybe today will be different. Today I'm going to waste five minutes on this before putting the wrong answer. I mean, part of the, I think, smart test taking is, oh, my God, here it comes again. I'm going to get this wrong faster than anybody's ever gotten this wrong on the LSAT, right? Sure. I mean, I think, I think there's a broader concern here, which is that I would say the vast majority of my students and probably the vast majority of test takers despise what they're doing on a daily basis. They hate it. They, they, they think that it feels bad to them because it reflects on them. They don't enjoy their work. They're not finding joy in the process. They've got their eyes on the prize. They've got their eyes on their eventual admission to law school, on their six-figure salary, on the life that will be better once all of this is beyond them. And that's no way to learn something. They yeah, have to 100%. find joy in the process itself. Um, and, and in order to do that, the stricture of systemizing the the content and the freedom to enjoy the thing for itself and to rely on your intuition to rely on your right brain and that uh, that either one of those extremes makes it impossible to enjoy the thing as you're doing it and if you're not enjoying the thing as you're doing it you're not going to learn from it instead you're going to resent it no, I think you're 100 percent right on that, and you know I'm gonna I'm gonna make a, a confession in my life, okay? Okay. Um, I I think LSAT is incredibly interesting and incredibly fun. Me too. Me too. You're kidding. I'm not the <laughs> no. only one. No, you are no, not the it. only one. I love it too. I think it's fascinating, and uh, this is why I advocate so strongly for. You know, going back to our model, why do we want blind review as a triple review step? I find that to be the stage with no shackles, no time constraints, and the greatest amount of creativity, the, the greatest, uh, you know, extent that I can be creative about how I think about the material, how I visualize it or represent it visually or diagram it. Um I find blind review to be a lot of fun and I try to get my students to view it that way rather than seeing it as a tedious step in the process. Whereas I view time testing to be kind of, it, it is tedious. It produces anxiety for me. And uh, also the strategy planning I find to be quite difficult because it's getting right back to the, 
to the the matter at hand. You know, what are we going to do on a time test to get your score up? But the blind review is where none of that matters. And you can truly just read and think and learn and use the dictionary and be open to all kinds of, you know, new ideas and new ways of solving the the puzzles in front of you. I find that to be the the step where I have the most fun, honestly. Yeah. And, you know, we, we said this last night in class, but I'm going to say it again because I think it's, you know, I, I think it's a great way of looking at the world. Um, you know, you you may find the right answer on a test, but you don't know if that's the best way until you explore all the ways. And so you need blind review. You need untimed sections to explore every pathway because it's not only about getting the right answer. What's the most efficient, most confident, most effective, uh, uh, most reassuring way that I can do a question like this so that in the future, that bring it back to anxiety, that anxiety that I feel either from a lack of understanding sort of the systemization of what's there or too many tools, which is also anxiety producing. Um, if If I can manage to get myself into that sort of sweet middle ground where I'm really feeling it, that's the thing that's really going to to allay my fears and allow me to to test with confidence. But I can't know what that is until I dig in and 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 uncover all of the the nuances there, both good and bad. Well, people, you know, they're not interested in the nuances. You know, they want quick fix. But why, you know, why don't we just think about it sort of this way? I mean, you know, so we call this podcast series LSAT Life. So we agree that LSAT basically mirrors life. It actually does because LSAT requires making decisions, so does life, but we all agree that life should be fun and therefore LSAT should be fun too. Yep. So what are small steps that can be taken to get people to really get excited and enjoy this LSAT? Sucks. I agree with you. I mean, the people who see it as a chore, an obstacle, you know, they're creating barriers. They're creating walls. They're creating impediments to their own success here. I think. Yeah. Um, so one of the one one of the things one of the things that I do, you know, there, there's a book. This is probably 20 years old or more. Um, he was a UC psychologist, Mihai um, Chikshent uh, Mihai, and he wrote a book about flow states, about finding this perfect sort of work. Uh, workflow where you're enjoying what you're doing and you're in this in this beautiful balance. He has got a really good breakdown of ways that you can um, focus yourself on accomplishing the right things. Um, and, and it has to do with sort of balancing what's in the future and what's in front of you and living in the moment and working in the moment um, by by eliminating anxieties. Um, you know, number number one is make sure you're clear on what your goals are. Um, have you have you sort of enumerated the goals? Have you verbalized the goals? Do you have somebody with which you're with whom you're talking about the goals? If you haven't done that, you've got to do that first because without that, everything is uncertain. Everything is sort of wild. Um, you need to know that your well-being is centered in your thinking, right? You can't put your well-being off to the side. So that needs to be in in the center of things. You need to make sure that you have some autonomy over what you're doing, that you don't give yourself over fully to a program, to a class, to a tutor, right? To some arbitrary work calendar that you were given, right? That you are deciding what you're doing and you're deciding it for the right reasons. You have to make a commitment to yourself. Um, 
people understand inherently the reasons that you're doing that they're doing things and if you're making a commitment for the wrong reasons i'm doing it for the salary or i'm doing it for some arbitrary uncertain future that's not good enough you have to be doing it for you for a good reason and then the last one which is critical is is this balance of challenge and skill building right if we're going to be in that perfect growth lane we have to make sure that we are providing sufficient challenge so that we can grow in order to develop new skills. If our skills are outpacing our challenge, if we're only giving ourselves easy things to do, we won't grow. If our challenge is there, but we're not developing skills, we need to focus on skill building so that we can stay in that, in that perfect middle. So you don't want to over-challenge yourself. That breeds anxiety. You don't want to under-challenge yourself. That will also breed anxiety. You need to be right in the right in the pocket. So that's sort of the that's the that's the crux of it, right? It's it's working in the now. It's making sure that you're focused on what's right in front of me and accomplishing the thing that's right in front of me so that I can grow and that you're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, that's an interesting framework. I'm glad you you shared that. I'm gonna have to look into that a little more. I it's was a great at- book. I was looking at a, a a diagram that Jake shared to prep for today's meeting, and um, it has a really nice comparison of anxiety and boredom, and how you want to kind of get in the middle between the two. Because there's students who go the other way, right? We have students who are very anxious about the test, but we also have a lot of students who say it's extremely boring, and we sort of have the opposite problem: just getting them to care. Well, that, well that's the bigger problem. Is the people who say it's boring? I think I think that's by far the bigger problem. Yeah, and you I know. think I think they think it's boring because they don't know how to challenge themselves. They say, "Well, I do my practice tests and I get my scores and I review the answers. What else am I supposed to do?" Right. Well, and are they that's what they want. Uh, no, they they aren't, but they don't know how to they don't know how to challenge themselves. If they are getting the scores they want, they move on to something else to do and put the LSAT behind them, right? Right. But you know, I think that this this problem of boredom, right, which is really boredom means inability to concentrate, which means an inability to read the information carefully, is probably fatal. So how do, how do you get somebody excited about the LSAT? Um, you know, one way that I used to think about this, one of many ways, I suppose, was that there's a lot of people who approach this, and I used to use the phrase, LSAT, not my friend, or rather LSAT is my enemy, okay, or something like that. So the job is to go from, you know, uh, either not my friend to friend or from enemy to, uh, you know, friend or something like that. And that involves somehow getting people excited about the content of this. Yeah, I think it's about divorcing it from the goal. If you see it only as a means to an end, it will never be enjoyable in and of itself. Well, I I, I think that's right. But can you, I mean, 
like think of how many people because they deprive themselves you know they decided they don't want to go to law school so they've deprived themselves on the necessity of doing the LSAT. i mean you know they reach their lives and it's like a full stage of life they've never really enjoyed right <laughs> not just the Every- LSAT, all the all the exams yeah absolutely should be something everybody goes through no look i you know i i think addressing that as a as a as an issue is important and sometimes it means stepping away from the lsat and talking about what are the other things that you do in your life that are challenges in this way have you ever done a crossword puzzle do you play scrabble with your with your friends or chess you know keith is a competitive chess player um do you have you ever solved a rubik's cube have you ever attempted something that was a challenge. Have you ever try to train for a half marathon? What are the things that are that are available to you in your life that are challenges that you've set your mind to and tried to accomplish? And this can be no different from that. But if you've if you've got a goal for a specific reason and you you want to be on the other side of it and you don't want to be inside of it, you're never going to enjoy it. So you so know, isn't what the I try to... to get people to embrace a challenge? I mean, we're talking to some extent about a lot of people will never want to challenge, and they're going to have a lot of trouble with this, okay? You know, to get to the first step being uh, to embrace, you know, embracing a challenge. I mean, I think there should be LSAT psychiatrists, people who specialize in LSAT psychiatry. I mean, that's what we do, essentially. Yeah. That's our Um, whole job. You know, I try to get people motivated to learn the material through outside resources. People always tell me they hate the science passages and I have them go read Scientific American for a month and they they usually find something interesting in there if they commit to it. And so I try to use some outside source to show them that, you know, LSAT didn't make this stuff up. These are real issues, real writings that exist out in the world that lawyers might be called upon to read and interpret. Yeah. The only thing that I think makes a, a legal career worth it. Okay. And I, I, by the way, I fully acknowledge that this is nothing but my personal opinion. And therefore, like everything else I say, people should discount if they want. But the only thing that makes a, a career as a lawyer different from certain other kinds of careers is the ability and the opportunity to keep relearning different things, you know, throughout your whole life. You know, you want to be a general trial lawyer or something, you think you can try a case, you know, uh, uh, involving uh, anything without learning something about the topic. I mean, it's completely impossible, right? I think the only career that that mimics it is being a professional educator, right? That in my my line of work, day to day, week to week, month to month, student to student, I have to learn something new about human psychology and I have to learn new content. But lawyers are the same. Every case is different. You have to become a bit of a jack of all trades. You need to know a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this in order to speak well, fluently. You about need it. you need the the, uh, the the motivation to continue relearning and reinventing yourself and to find that kind of stuff exciting, right? So maybe you know they want to be. I mean, I'm not sure what they mean when they say they want to be a lawyer. I have no idea what they mean. I mean, it could mean anything from you know middle class income to you know some exciting lifestyle to you know in- interesting work, etc. But 
you know, if they want to be a, a lawyer, maybe try to equate the LSAT experience with that. This is your opportunity to learn about a whole bunch of stuff and develop some new proficiencies in exactly the same way you would as you were a lawyer. Yeah. You cannot be a successful lawyer without the, the willingness and enthusiasm to embrace new learning opportunities. It's impossible. As a lawyer, you're expected to become an instant expert in whatever your client wants to happen. Whatever your client does, you better know about that. Whatever your client does or wants, you better have the willingness, the ability to learn about it. Right. And learn about it quickly. Learn about it from a from a limited set of material and 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 do it as fast as possible. You know, I I I people talk a lot about the fact that the LSAT is irrelevant and you know, oh, it's just a metric and it's just some artificial way to get into to law school that law schools have determined. I I don't think that's true. I think the skills that you that you develop and demonstrate on the LSAT are entirely relevant to being insightful, uh, um, uh, capable thinkers. And we would want our legal professionals to be the same. That would be my hope, is that the lawyers out in the world have these skills. Can you give an example of two or two of what you mean by that? Okay, the, the, the skills that you have in logic games, what that is, is take a whole bunch of information that's interrelated, lay it out on the table in front of you, and be able to understand how they're connected to each other and what I can know based on this. I need the facts of the case and I need them all to be connected in the following way. What must have happened? The same is true of LR, right? We're taking all of these little paragraphs, little statements from people about what happened in this thing. We have to extract from it what were they trying to convince me of and how did they do it and what was wrong with their reasoning this is a skill that lawyers need to have i need to look at a case i need to understand what the rule was i need to understand what the what the claim was and whether or not that was well supported yeah it's the it's the framework that we look at the world through it's just it's distilled on the lsat but it's there sure absolutely absolutely all right so there's a book sorry go ahead keith no, I'm glad uh, that Jake mentioned logic games because I get asked this frequently. What in the world does a logic game have to do with my ability to practice law? And there may be many specialties where it has very little correlation. But in law school, I found civil procedure to be the class where I was most reminded of my logic game skills because I would get very complex fact patterns, arbitrary rules about how to sort of, you know, what framework to analyze those facts to figure out if we've satisfied certain rules or whether certain time limits, certain, uh, you know, certain uh, time limits had been met. And so at the end of the day, I ended up drawing a lot of diagrams to represent those complex fact patterns and to organize the information. And I think that learning how to distill complex rules and facts into visual aids is an important skill for a, a law student, if not an attorney. Well, I actually, uh, yeah, except for the, uh, you know, at least in logic games, right, you're actually given all the rules that you need to work with to solve those questions. Law school extends it a step beyond that, right? Where... Well, you have to determine what the rules are before you can even reason with them. 
Presumably, yeah, but but I think we're still talking about the same thing. Ultimately, the game isn't fully deduced. It's not an Einstein puzzle where you can fill out the entire grid up front. There are still hypotheticals out there. There are still between five and 50 iterations that are possible in that world of that of that game. And the same can be true of the world, right? We're, we're presented with a fact pattern that has many hypotheticals. I can imagine the application in contracts, right? We're trying to create a contract in which we know all of the different possibilities that might happen and what the outcomes would be on the other side of that. You need to be able to follow those decision trees to make sure that everything is accounted for. Well, you also need to prioritize information, decide of the rules, which are the key ones. I actually think that to some, I think that the logic game section on the test is on the right track uh, in testing that skill. I mean, it's very difficult to do. All right. So, you know, there's that book, The uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Who was that? Stephen Covey, is that right? Sounds right. So, so we're talking here. We're going to, what we're going to do here. Maybe to kind of bring this to a soft landing today is, well, can we create the seven habits of effective LSAT test takers? Like self-determination would be one thing that I would put on there for just brainstorming ideas. Jake mentioned it before, kind of taking charge of your own prep and not being a slave to okay, any- Okay, so personal responsibility, yes? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Okay. I am in charge of my prep. Uh, my prep is not in charge of me. I determine what my prep is. So that would be the first personal responsibility. Yeah, and it's an evolving, you know, goal, but you ultimately have to continue to take charge of it. Okay. And that means that you don't swallow hook, line, and sinker all the advice that you're given. Okay. Personal responsibility. What do you think, Jake? Second? Um, I think self meta analysis. So it's not only analyzing content, it's the ability to analyze oneself, one's own thinking, one's own habits. Okay, so in practical terms, would that mean, damn, I always make this kind of reasoning error? It's, damn, I made this kind of reasoning error this time. This is how I should have known that that reasoning was incorrect. And here is the correct reasoning. So next time when I see X, Y, and Z, this is what I'm going to do differently in order to account for that. All right, Keith, and number three. The habits of yeah, willingness to embrace errors, embrace failure. Okay, so a mistake is an opportunity for personal growth. Right. Thank God for my mistakes. Yeah, no. it would be boring if I never made any. Just ask my wife. <laughs> okay. No. All right. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll shift to Jake at this moment. Okay. <laughs> um. And and a, a willingness and ability to communicate your successes and failures to others. You cannot do this alone. Okay. I am not an island. Okay. Everybody around me is part of my journey and therefore contributes to my success. Especially when it comes to anxiety. 
If you hold that anxiety in, if you swallow it, if you think that you are capable of overcoming it simply because you're an adult uh, and adults don't feel anxiety, of course not, it's, it's only going to make things worse. The best thing that you can do for yourself is to open that valve, talk about it with your family, your friends, your tutor, your study partners, whoever it is, Real shed, shed light on it, get it out in the open air and realize that it loses its power that way. Yeah, you know what? Uh, that is an important life principle generally. I, in my day-to-day work that I do, what I've noticed is that the people who are most isolated are the people who manage to convert the smallest problems into the biggest ones quickly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's, that's a very good point. All right, back over to Keith. I would say taking pleasure in reading when my students come with a, you know, a pre-inclination to read a lot, they're easy to, easier to, to work with, easier to adapt their, their reading habits. Absolutely. You know, there's a certain colleges and universities offer courses called great books, you know, where you read the great literature of the ages. I I would suggest the two of you add to your LSAT program, something like great LSAT passages. Uh, you know, something like that. So that, you know, through the ages, uh, you know, this stuff, this stuff can be identified, but that's, you know, sort of, uh, Hey, you know, this is an opportunity to, you know, to experience something I might not otherwise have experienced. Yeah. All right. Jay. Ooh, down to me oh, on the last one. here. By the way, I'm actually, I've actually lost count. Are we had about that, six. Now? That was, that was six. Yeah. Oh, so uh, so you're going to bring it home now? I'm going to try. All right. Uh, batting cleanup. He is batting cleanup. Bases are loaded. Um, I think even if it's not a natural ability, the ability to organize oneself both internally and externally. Um, organization of thinking, the ability to... Um, take information and put it on the page in front of you in a way that is readable, not just to you, but to other people. Um, and, and a willingness to develop that skill and improve that skill, no matter where you start. Okay. Very, very interesting. You know, it's, uh, you know, I realize that we didn't, you know, talk about sort of closing in this way, but it's very, very interesting because as I listened to your, you know, your, your suggestions, which I think are very wise suggestions, it underscores to me how much LSAT mimics life, right? Yeah. You know, the same issues you have in LSAT are, you know, the same issues that you're going to have in life, which makes me wonder, can anybody really consider that they've lived a full life if they haven't gone through the LSAT preparation stage of their life, what do you think? Well, look, I mean, maybe it's the culmination of all of the academic and intellectual lessons we were supposed to have learned as eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds and, and 30-year-olds and 42-year-olds, right? That, you know, this, this, the embracing of failure, the understanding of the, of the, the uh, that anxiety is a natural human emotion, uh, human experience, um, and the, the, the need to organize one's thinking in order to put pieces of a puzzle together um the 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 finding of joy in the process of doing rather than in the result these are all the things that we try to teach our elementary school kids and we try to teach our high school kids and here we are and we are 
21 or we are 45 or however old we are trying to take the LSAT. And now we get to see whether or not those lessons stuck. Yeah. You know, on a very, I can sort of, you know, bring us closer on a very practical observation. Um, sure, LSAT mimics life. Anxiety is part of life, so it's part of LSAT, et cetera. But I think what's really important, and this is where I think a good tutor can help somebody, is to get them to see what kind of anxiety you have and precisely how that anxiety, you know, affects their, you know, the things they do when they're trying to answer LSAT questions. I think that could be helpful. You know, going back to, you know, my obviously exaggeration, but the people who are overly analytical and the people who are overly reckless, you know, et cetera, and how, how anxiety uh, bears into that as well. Well, this has been, again, a very, very interesting uh, conversation. I thank you for it. Uh, any closing thoughts before we end for today? We, of course, will be back with more topics, but any closing top thoughts here? Jake, Keith? You know, I think the best antidote to anxiety is just thorough prep. Give yourself enough time. So many people set arbitrary time constraints that create anxiety. So I tell people, don't even register for the LSAT until you're hitting your target score, and that will dictate which cycle you'll be competitive for. But trying to do it from the reverse, the way they do, always creates unrealistic expectations and then those get extended onto the tutor so that's my first you know my closing advice is give yourself six months or more and don't even think about your test date until you're hitting scores that are competitive for schools that you would be happy to attend and if you can't answer all of those questions you're not ready for the LSAT yet all right Jake I, I want to extend the idea, right? There are lots of things that breed anxiety. Let's deal with the low-hanging fruit first, right? Don't create new external anxieties to, to load on top of the ones that are already inherent in taking this test. Push your test date out until you're ready. Make sure that you create good learning environments for yourself at home. Take all of the other stressors in your life and remove those, right? Do all the things you can to, to, to manage the extrinsic stuff so that then we can see whether or not the anxiety that you're feeling about the content is actually about the content or about those other simple things. So manage your life first, and then we can worry about the test. And will you do that? Because as goes life, so goes LSAT, or as goes LSAT, so goes life. I mean, LSAT is just a part of life. Bottom line, great basketball coach did not say winning requires the will to win so much as it requires the will to prepare to win. So I will end with that message. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Keith. And enjoyed this and looking forward to our next one. Thanks, John. Thank you.